A very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral to the next in our online conversation series. Today I'm talking to Dr Catherine Fox, who is Senior Lecturer and Academic Director of the Manchester Writing School at the Manchester Metropolitan University. Catherine is well known to many people as a novelist. Her first novel, Angels and Men, was a Sunday Times pick of the year. Her most recent series, the Linchester series, have been very influential on many people's reading during lockdown and before then. So our conversation today is around stories, how we tell stories, the kind of truths that stories can tell us that can tell us more than the truths that simple facts alone can tell us. We also look at some of our favourite Bible stories and reflect on what they tell us about ourselves, about God and the world. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Catherine. Catherine, it's lovely to have you with us today um, to talk about stories and their importance in theology. So I thought it might be nice if we start by just reflecting a little bit on why stories are so important to you. you you're a novelist and you teach creative writing for a living. Um, why have stories been so important in your life? I think it's a mixture of just the sheer entertainment and taking you out of yourself and visiting imaginary worlds, but also as a way of making sense of of my own life and my own experience, a sort of setting things in, in order and creating a, a narrative that helps me to make sense of the kind of random bombardment of experience that, that is part of human life. And why, why does the telling of stories help you do that, do you think? I suppose it's, I don't know what I think till I see what I write sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, because it, it means that, that once it's something's on the page, that's what it is. I mean, you can go back and edit it, obviously. Um, but while you're just sort of dithering and thinking, uh, what, what am I going to write today? What am I going to say about this? What, what, what are my characters going through at the moment? Um, there's an infinite set of possibilities. And it's the closing down, I think. I think OK, now this is what it is. I don't need to worry about all the other things that it might have been. So do you find writing is some kind of therapy for you? Do you, do you discover that you kind of you can process things that you find harder to process without writing? I think that must be true. Yes. Yes. Though it's just, maybe it's it's like some types of therapy where, you know, you're going to cry all the way through and it's going to be harrowing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> At the moment, um, my practice is to blog my fiction either in weekly or monthly installments and every time it's coming up to the deadline I'm in pieces really I think I can't do this it's terrible <laughs> why am I putting myself through this but as as that's before I'm writing generally or in the times when I'm not physically putting words on the screen um, so but when I'm actually doing that things come into focus and think, okay so that's what I'm feeling about this um, that's what's important to me at the moment I don't I don't write to a particular plan I don't I don't have a plot I'm not very good at plotting um, but at the moment um, the, the kind of events of of uh, Covid really provided me with enough plot to be getting on with yes 
So, so it is it's it is therapeutic, but it's hard work as well. The way that um, therapy can be, I think. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, I certainly find that reading novels um, is the thing that I need to do when I'm going through a really bad time. I have, and it depends how bad a time. So if it's a really <laughs> bad time, I have to read my favourite old stories that I know oh, yes. will take me into Re-read. a new world. It's like comfort yeah. eating, isn't it? Like a bag of it crisps is. and a bar of chocolate curled up under a duvet. Yeah, yeah. Old, old favourites, definitely. They're not going to yes. spring any surprises the- on you. No, exactly. I'm not going to have a horrible, nasty ending that you didn't. There's not a twist in the tale that you hadn't seen coming. Yes. And the the person you've been rooting for then just suddenly gets killed off. Like Game of Thrones. Like I can't be doing with Game of Thrones. I can watch watch the news if I want that. And then there's the kind of the less trouble times, aren't there, when you can trust a new novel and see where it takes you. uh... Yes. Yes, you can. Yes. And that is partly why we read novels I think to find out Mm -hmm. what it's like to be someone else this is the big the big con that novels pull all the time um, that that it creates the impression that you're in someone else's head seeing the world through their eyes Mm -hmm. and that's great I think that does extend our ability to empathize with people we would probably in the normal course of events never meet and I find it helps me unravel various things. Um, the right novel, not the wrong novel, but the right novel can help yes. me suddenly kind of work out why I reacted like that to something that happened to me or why that person really annoys me. Um, the kind yes. of novel can help, can help you work process it a bit. I think it's those points of recognition. Um, and you think, yes, exactly that. That's what, that's it. Yes. Mm-hmm. When people do this, it makes me feel this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, or that kind of laugh of recognition when it's it's a kind of someone just a writer just skewers a particular absurdity of human nature. Now Jane Austen, of course, was was brilliant at that, but other writers too. Um, you you just think, yeah, I know people like that. <laughs> and that I mean that reminds me of your Linchester Chronicles because you do that brilliantly in the Linchester ones, <laughs> where suddenly people you go, I know that person. <laughs> people are convinced it's based on real people. But it's just based on a, a lifetime of observation in the church and out of the church. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I, so I steal anecdotes. I, I do steal. I steal. I heard this brilliant, brilliant word from um, Val McDermott in a talk that she was giving recently. Mm. She said, these characters have my anecdotage. And I thought, that's it. It's not autobiographical, but you do ransack your experience and... Um, the experience of those close to you. <laughs> if someone tells me a funny story, I think, well, that's, you know, all bets are off. I'm, I feel perfectly entitled or at liberty to to adapt that for my fiction. So I've mentioned the Linchester Chronicles and you've referred to them in the blogging. Tell us a little bit about that whole process, because you're writing a novel with those in a very different way to the ways in which novels are normally written. Um, Why did you decide to do that? And um, how have you found the whole process? Well, initially it was fun. (laughs) Yes. So it was basically because I'd been trying in vain for about seven years to write a, a novel that eventually became acts and omissions. So I had the story um, and had the characters, had the plot. I basically, yes, I did have it all. I had a couple of goes at writing it and sort of passing it by my agent who just said, nah, no, it's not really working. Um, and I think I knew it wasn't. 
and it was because I was trying to cast it in the wrong format. Um, so I was trying to write um, a novel in the style of my earlier novels, which was uh, a single viewpoint, a strong central female protagonist through whose eyes you see the whole story unfolding. But if the basic plot line is about two two guys and a lot of the the action is is behind closed doors, it's, it makes it very difficult to have a strong female protagonist unless she's got, <laughs> got her ear to the door listening in. So that's why it wasn't working. And I just, in the end, I just sort of gave up and thought, well, I'm just, I'm just going to have fun with this. I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do, which was to be a Victorian novelist leaning into the reader and saying, I'm going to take you on a journey, dear reader, to meet a new character. Please um, bear with them. They're a bit drunk. You know, that that's, which is, just it was so liberating to 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 be a very in your face narrator because that's become quite unfashionable really the the kind of current good practice is very much show don't tell and sort of efface yourself as the author don't break the fourth wall and I just thought oh I've I've, I've done with that I'm just gonna just gonna have a riot I'm gonna ransack this huge resource that I've got of the failed novel and tell it like a soap opera in installments there's a sort of modern riff on um barchester chronicles which of course would have been serialized when they originally came out so that was the initial idea but you didn't really expect i imagine that we were going you were going to be blogging it during a lockdown <laughs> no not at all so initially so in the first one because i already had the plot line i was just kind of pacing it so so the, the main catastrophe ended up landing sort of uh, in about kind of August, September, three quarters of the way through the year and then resolving it. That's a very traditional narrative arc. Um, and I thought, oh, just to make it feel more authentic, I'll create the illusion that this is actually happening now and, and uh, it's unfolding in real time. So I'll just weave in any kind of contemporary references. So if, if the rule of thumb for me was if my characters would be thinking and talking about it, then it would make its way into the novel. Um, and that was fine in 2013. Um, but so then I, because, because I, I kind of felt, oh, I'm not quite finished with this idea. I'll blog another one. But that just kind of logically followed on from the plot line of the previous one. And then the third one, I, I just didn't really have a plot at all. I had a theme, which was death and judgment <laughs> so very upbeat um and i knew and I, I thought oh there's i just needed to resolve a couple of um love story lines and uh, yeah just tidy things up a bit but this was 2016 so of course I, as the year went on i thought oh, i should probably be they, my characters would be talking about the referendum wouldn't they um and of course it just gathered momentum and that really became the plot um and it was so difficult and demanding to to try and chronicle Brexit and then Trump being, um, you know, elected president. I just thought I'm never doing that again. <laughs> so I took a break. <laughs> Having said that's it, no more Linchester. And then in 2020, <laughs> I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to do another one. <laughs> so it's all my fault, really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that I did weekly installments for last year and then switched to monthly simply because it was killing me, really.
And and what did it feel like to be writing your story? Because I mean, I I know so many of us kind of really struggled during lockdown and found our emotions would be kind of whipping all over the place. Um, Was it really difficult to to blog your novel in that way, or did it in fact help to kind of work help work out what you helped me? It helped me work out what I was feeling from different angles because I'd got a cast of very different characters. So I could, it's just a little thought experiments really. So I could think, for example, how would Freddie be responding to lockdown? And I thought, oh, if he's just in his tiny house and cathedral close, he'll, he'll just go berserk. So I had thought, okay, they're going to move house. Um, so that was me thinking, uh, imagining the sense of being trapped and not able to get out. Um, and thinking of ways of strategies of coping with this and then thinking about who so, so some people are going to be very lonely um i was fortunate in in lockdown to have my um youngest son sorry my older son and his family staying so there are quite a gang of us here so we we didn't face that total isolation that a lot of people did but i could imagine and, and listen to people's accounts of it and and weave that in um and there were many times when i just I thought I'm, I just feel this so overwhelming, overwhelming despair or anxiety or anger, and and I just that to me was was the thread I followed, if you like, to help me write because I thought if if I'm feeling this, the chances are loads of other people are as well. So that that's how I went about it, really. And I think the thing for me that's really interesting about talking to you about this and reflecting on your writing is that kind of interchange between stories and truth. Because often when we talk yes. about stories, mm. we kind of imply that stories are not really true. You know, there's facts which are true and stories which are not true. Um, and I think what you're reflecting is that there's a real truth that can be told through stories. Um, do you have thoughts yes. about that? Yes, I do, because um, there are different types of truth. There's, there's, as you say, factual truth. So the, the fact is that my alarm went off at 7.15 this morning. That's really not up for arguing. That's what it did. Um, but there are other truths kind of beyond and beside that. So the fact is I actually, the other fact is... Um, how I felt about my <laughs> going off at, uh, at that time. And it's, it's, so the bare facts aren't the whole story. And I think it's, it's the selecting of facts and putting them in certain order that creates the story, I think. Um, the order in which you tell things. Um, so, so even if you're trying to write nonfiction, there's still a fictionalizing and an organizing of that material because you can't tell everything. And of course, this is very much the case when we're thinking about historical writing, that there's a, people tend, you know, the way we were taught history at school perhaps is here are the facts, learn the facts and you'll pass your exam and get into a good university. Um, but, but without any real recognition at the time when I was doing history at school, that, that these were very selected facts based on documents and, and so on that had survived. And there were a great many other facts that have been lost to us, other stories and other voices that we're not hearing anymore. Um, 
But I also think that there's something about very powerful about story, which is totally made up, that tells us deep truths about ourselves that we wouldn't have learned via another medium. I've got here a fantastic quote, if you just forgive me while I kind of riffle through, from, um, this is a, a, um, a book that I teach, um, Ursula de Guin, The Left Hand of Darkness. I think a lot of people, it's a great favourite of theirs. But in the introduction to that, um, she says, uh, fiction writers, at least in their braver moments, do desire the truth to know it speak it, serve it, but they go about it in a peculiar and devious way, which consists in inventing persons, places and events which never did and never will exist or occur, and telling about these fictions in detail and at length, and with a great deal of emotion. And then when they are done writing, when they're done writing down this pack of lies, they say, there, that's the truth. And I think that really does resonate with me. Um, that it's a it's truth at a different level truth that speaks to the heart that that speaks about the, the glory and the problem of existence and of being human and that brings us really nicely into theology um because <laughs> in a sense um what you're now kind of dancing around as you're talking about um story as theology Mm. Um, because for me, at the heart of theology is trying to understand the truth about God, about the world, about ourselves. That's what yeah. we're about in theology. So what's your reflection on story and theology and how we could do story and theology um, in a way that kind of helps us get into some of those big questions? I think for most people, that's that's where theology it's fire story. That's where theology stops being um, a, a series of doctrinal facts or propositions um, and, and sort of lands and roosts in the heart, if you like, as a bird. So I think all, all our thinking and talking about God is inevitably going to be metaphorical. I just think that story just is just more um, upfront about, about that. Um, so... So we, we recognise in other people's stories something of the truth about ourselves. So I think that's why um, the Bible stories about characters resonate so much for us. Um, so when I was in Sunday school, a good little girl in Sunday school, or not always that good, um, we had a, a, a hymn, which I dare say you'll know, Paula. Um, God has given us a book full of stories that he gave to his people of old. Um, that begins with the tale of a garden and ends with a city of gold. And then it goes on listing about all, all the other stories in there. And I think that's, that's true. So, so to, to try and understand a, a, a theory about God, how are we going to do that? Except as it impinges on our existence and our, our life. So I think th those big stories become our story. Um, and, and we find ourselves in that story um, and feel less alone, I think. 
Now, I really resonate with that. So, um, as you know, I had a go at writing a story called Phoebe um, yes. about people who existed in Rome. And I've just finished uh, my second one called Lydia, yes. um, based in Philippi. Oh, right. And what what really a big fan of purple me. wasn't she Lydia she was a massive fan <laughs> I hope of that features Sold. in your book <laughs> oh you you would not believe how much purple there is and in fact <laughs> discussions about exactly what shade of purple is the right kind of purple um, I, I never yeah. thought I would get so yeah. interested in what purple oh is yes yes <laughs> um, I won't bore you now um, but the thing that really struck me as I was writing the stories is the way in which um, when you tell a story, um, what Paul's theology means to people, you can play with and yes. explore. So I was reflecting in Lydia mm -hmm. on the Christ hymn and what it means for Christ to um, not to cling to equality with God and to take on the form of a slave. Yes. Um, and then was thinking, well, what does that feel like if you are actually a slave? So I was kind of playing with various ideas about what it felt yes. like to be a person who hears that. Um, and I think there is something really interesting, isn't there, about when you take doctrine away simply from facts and make it yes. the lived experience yes. of someone. And I think that, yes, and that's how people come to faith, I think. That mm. suddenly it makes sense for me. It's not out there anymore. Not, oh, here's a, I can read in this little booklet. <laughs> Christ died for my sins, the bridge illustration and all that. Uh, it's just like oh oh me yes okay that that i i'm loved and and that i'm safe um yeah yeah but i think what what it sounds to me that your your practice in in writing and and i i think i could see that happening in phoebe uh when i read it is that you're you, you've you've opened the toolbox of the novelist and picked out some of our some of our best tools and one of them is what if what if what if you were listening to that message from from Paul about Jesus being a slave and you are a slave Ooh, what would that feel like it would feel very different from if you are a slave owner that would yeah <laughs> so that, definitely and it's that interiority that that novels tend to have that is mostly absent from biblical narratives mm. which stay on the surface and i think that's very powerful that they do that because onto that surface or or below that surface we can bring our imagination to bear and that's where we can start to place ourselves in those stories whereas if you, if if it's all um kind of amplified and full of the consciousness of of the character which is what novels frequently do um then that becomes obviously them um and and there's no not so much room for us to read ourselves and map ourselves onto that narrative i've never thought about that that's really interesting and is that why things like the parable of um the prodigal son are so powerful for us i think because so, you know, yeah. you've got I, that's that great moment in the parable of the prodigal son where he comes to himself but it doesn't yes. tell you why he's come to himself or, no um, you don't get his thought processes really no. other than he just looks around and thinks what <laughs> even my you know my dad's slaves get a better deal than this i'm i'm, I'm going home then he rehearses there's just that's a kind of a slightly rare bit of interior mm. monologue from a character in a parable 
but most but no we we don't get the details of his experience and this and the and his the kind of if you could make a novel of it and I probably there are examples of of novels that are loosely riffing on the the, um, the prodigal son um but we don't get that slow build uh, and, and, you know, the treacherous friends falling away when the money runs out. Um, it's just, it's very pared down. Um, but into that, we can place ourselves. But if it were really, really detailed and really what the characters have been really worked up and made three dimensional, then it would make, you know, cracking good novel perhaps, but not necessarily so much space for us to find ourselves in it because it then becomes very much someone else's story rather than that very generous invitation or challenge because when I read that story I often wonder I feel I can place myself in the shoes of the, <laughs> of the older brother but I think ha that thanks a bunch you know I've been good all my life and look at these look at these scroungers <laughs> or whatever it might be you know just a sort of sibling rivalry it resonates there doesn't it and and the idea that that you know what's the point of being good if in the end everyone gets forgiven <laughs> just because they come home you know <laughs> so that's a it's a deep challenge as well and a particular challenge to me is is the laborers in the vineyard I don't think I'll ever finish thinking about that one because it feels at one level totally, you know, you've got what you agree to. You know, this is a fair wage. It's, it's not unfair. You think, no, but, but I've worked all day. <laughs> and it's, it just makes us, it, it, we, we imagine ourselves into those parables and, mm. uh, and see something of ourselves. It shines a light on our, our own frailties, but also on, it makes us think, okay, so this is what grace looks like. This is what generosity, untrammeled, impartial generosity and grace looks like. What do you think of that? Uh, okay, I've got a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> so have you got a favourite Bible story? Well, I'm very fond of Jonah, I'd have to say. I love uh, Jonah, yeah. <laughs> And again, you don't you don't get much of his thought processes. So you can see in yourself, some, you know, it's easier for you to enter into that story. It's a space. It's very roomy for you to think of the times when you've been invited or, or asked, go to Nineveh, that great city, and denounce it. And you're thinking, no, <laughs> not doing that. And then stomping off. And then eventually, the, the, uh, I do have that sense of, of the challenges of my life, the bits of my personality and my, and my past that still need healing. They get served up again and again. And if you do go, no, I'm not, I refuse, I reject that. I'm not, I'm not thinking about that. I'm not, not going there. I'm not doing that. That's not me. I don't do those things. Um, then it's as if the... The call recedes for a bit until you find yourself crippled <laughs> into a massive storm, swallowed by a whale, puked up on the shore, and then it comes back again. Go to Nineveh. 
There's like no, I'm always amazed there's no kind of there, see, that's what happens if you disobey my commands. <laughs> it's just like, gosh, you never, and then I think at that point, oh, fair enough. And and then he's so grumpy when when his ministry is fruitful and they all repent. <laughs> because I knew it. I knew you'd let them off and make a fool of me. <laughs> and, then, and then that whole, it's just, I just find it hilarious that, that he then goes and sits and I love the plan. You're good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then it gets, then it gets shriveled. Is, I'm going to die now. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of it's all, all our inner drama like, queens yes! all gather around <laughs> angry enough to die uh, and that sort of overreaction I just know that in myself and then just the just again like I said but you know what about all those people and much cattle and it just ends on that note without Jonah going oh very well yes I repent you are all gracious Lord and I I'm just that nobody no it just ends on that on that the divine plea, <laughs> wonderful. So that, yeah, that's a great favorite. But also I come back time and again to Mary and Martha, who both live in my head, I think. So I I have Mary who's, who does need to sit and ponder. Um, that's what my writing comes out of, long hours of pondering, and which, and which sort of shades in, in and out of prayer um but but i have to shut martha up who's going you should be working <laughs> you should be writing what about your emails <laughs> um but of course you know that the, the, the martha is sort of i i kind of categorize as as some the part of me that, that actually does get things done that doesn't just sit endlessly on a bench pondering and crying <laughs> but but actually gets words down on the on the page and um and maybe is a better editor so you just you don't need your editor when you're writing your first draft you really really don't or the inner critic who looks over your shoulder and says well that looks very contrived that's you're basically are you trying to rewrite dh lawrence <laughs> whatever whatever your inner voices are saying or perhaps to you why are you pretending to be a novelist paula when you're not <laughs> that what, oh yeah that's very loud in my head that? yeah <laughs> yes yes and you think okay that's interesting you can go next door while i'm writing and then maybe we'll value your input later on um but there is that cumbered with much serving poor old martha and i think i do i do that that is me half the time trying to trying to look after everybody uh, and 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 not acknowledging that sometimes the thing you need to do is just sit at the lord's feet and listen um, do you know the thing I, stories yeah one of my lightning revelations when i was reading that story of mary and martha um was to realize that 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 phrase you've just given um was that um she was caught up with many and then the word is diakonia in greek um, and that word is we often translate as ministry so she was engaged in much ministry and yes. um, for me that suddenly transformed it because like you I've all often had in my head Martha being just kind of um, the one who runs around doing stuff and she wasn't wasn't very necessary stuff she was just doing it but if you say she was doing a lot of ministry then all of a sudden yeah. Martha was doing something really important as well as Mary doing something really important um, and it completely transformed the story in my mind Yes, to two people yes. doing and, really and important things. 
but also the the focusing in on all this cumbered with much serving with cumbered with much ministry okay few things are necessary or one thing i think the greek's ambiguous is it's one thing is one 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 thing thing. okay so what is your one thing what is your one thing in all this ministry what is your one thing i think that's also the challenge to to martha and it's just if, if you are a sort of if you're a perfectionist which I am a recovering perfectionist. That you're trying all the time to cover all bases, to to ward off any possibility of making a mistake um, or cocking stuff up, letting people down, uh, people not you know not pleasing people. All those it's just it's exhausting. You are then cumbered with much much serving and ministry. Um, flying around the whole time and then looking at people who are sitting on their backside doing nothing, <laughs> resentful of other peoples who have focused and decided, no, this is my priority. This is my priority. Yeah. Hmm. So what we've kind of strayed into is that kind of reflection on how stories tell us things about ourselves. Mm. Um and it seems to me that actually one of the really important things that we've been discussing really around stories is how stories really read into our lives and te- help us tell our own stories. Um, have you found that to be an important thing as you're reflecting on writing and stories and narrative? It's helped me flush out some false narratives, if I can put it like that, that I've been operating with as if, as if their laws you know, that, that actually they're just thoughts, thoughts about um, that um, you can't, one of them would be, you can't, you're not allowed to make mistakes. <laughs> and I think I've operated with that narrative for years and based on a childhood experience. Um, and it's a, it's a defense mechanism to try and head off any possibility of the kind of mortification that you feel as a a child when you're publicly humiliated and told off for something that that you've done um and of course you're very totally it's a survival instinct that you think okay we we never one was and it was particularly difficult if you'd never didn't really know what it was you were meant to have done Um, so so uh dismantling false narratives and i think it and and checking those inner narratives that you've been operating with for years against the narratives of of scripture and the truth that coming back to the truth that that the lord is is gracious and generous long-suffering and abundant kindness Whereas I think I, I, I just need to check that my narrative doesn't get stuck in very early childhood memories of hearing hellfire sermons <laughs> and of being a hell-deserving sinner. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm, I'm not sure that that sort of circling round your question about creating yeah. prop, proper narratives. And it's, it's the sort of checking and balancing because you can... You, you need to have a kind of a, a, a broad, open awareness of scripture. It's a very kind of right brain 
<laughs> rather than left brain all the time, like how do, what linear, like um, and, and sets of propositions. I mean, we you know to have to have both those things, but but to take into account though, not otherwise you can get trapped in a very narrow view of God, story about God, and therefore a story about yourself. Mm. Um, if you're if you're if you're not attentive to the whole of scripture or being able to think okay there are all these verses that seem to say for example i do not permit a woman to speak to teach or speak which or, or um she must always be submissive to her husband which which you know you have to acknowledge those verses are there and then i guess if you're gay the clobber verses that that, that you know tell you you're a sinner and, and that's that's the narrative that's the bible narrative holding that against those other that you know, like that voice at the end of Jonah, saying, "But shouldn't I have compassion on all these people who don't know their left hand from their right, and much cattle?" So he's what just holding those big narratives together in the knowledge that, of course, these narratives and 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 the God we we love and seek to know, and who seeks to know us and comes looking for us, it is so much bigger. These are only ever partial images of of, of, a, of a reality that that is beyond us to describe and mm. and know in, in you know much the same way that we can't really think outside of we can't imagine what it'd be like to live in six dimension um, as you're talking i'm wondering whether writing narratives about other people gives you the permission to be more compassionate to yourself um because you know yeah, I, I, one does, of things yeah, I, yeah mm. i'm kind of internally very compassionate to everybody else but to <laughs> myself go but you didn't do that you made a mistake how dare you <laughs> yeah yeah but i wonder whether yeah. it's like kind of learning that compassion for and bringing it back into your own narrative i think so yes and not because as you as i so so i think i, I like and then compassionate towards almost all of my characters and you know probably all of them e even the ones I kind of hate <laughs> that doesn't really make sense but the ones that kind of scare me so there's there's one character who's who's who basically is is a confabulates and makes stuff up you know fabricated her cv and then came into the narrative and and mate was beastly to some of my really favorite characters um and and i thought you know i've met people who who seem to be trapped in this kind of life of um of of making making stuff up and um and and goalposts shifting when you try and confront them with things and it's very very difficult and scary to to deal with people with personalities like that but in the end i thought do you know what i am I am really sad for you that that's what what your experience has made made this the best possible way that you can live. Um, so yes, it does. It, even if people are doing things I don't like and would never do and disapprove of, <laughs> um, I do. I kind of because I can see why they've done it because I've been in their head. I know this is crazy because I it's all come out of my head. Um, actually, maybe that's the answer. It is all it is all coming out of my head. So maybe I'm looking, seeking out and healing those 
bits of me that are, that make me ashamed or make me scared. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah but no, self compassion is such. It's it's yes. like there's an been an embargo on that. Maybe you and I, perhaps from a good evangelical background, Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. That's what spells joy. And I think, well, hmm, I, I now question that <laughs> because if we, if we love other people as you love yourself, and then you don't really love yourself, then it's it's very difficult to be anything other than that sort of panicked loving of other people in order that, that everything's all right, you don't make mistakes and that you care for them and they like you. <laughs> yeah, so I've been doing quite a lot of work on that and it's uh, very interesting. So I thought I'd, because I'd stopped calling myself an idiot, on the, I thought, I, I, okay, I've got self-compassion and being kind to myself sorted. But there's this layer upon layer of other, mm. other stories I've been telling myself that that um that it's self-indulgent to consult your own preferences um whereas if you expressed a mild preference to me like I'd, I'd rather have gin than coffee right now and it was only a mild preference you didn't really mind and I just ignored you and then any time you ever expressed a mild preference for anything I ignored you and said yes well we're not doing that <laughs> then it, cumulatively it would be very unloving <laughs> which is <laughs> what it is to yourself because it yeah. matters yeah. neither one way nor the other and I, I you know I feel like going for a walk well you should be doing your work oh okay I won't then so I would never do that to you <laughs> so why do I do it to myself <laughs> yes it's just so there's deep narratives about um not putting yourself on the throne where Jesus should be that we think, oh, okay, that's an interesting, I've, I've got this all wrong. It's, a, it's not a very good narrative, this one. Let's, let's, let's rethink it in a kinder way. <laughs> so if people have been listening to our conversation and are feeling inspired to write some stories, because, you know, in a way, what we're talking about mm. is, is how we can kind of start doing it for ourselves. Um, what top tips would you give people if they kind of sat there with a blank piece of paper, you know, that terror, the terror of the blank <laughs> piece of paper and the pen in your hand, what tips would you give to people if they wanted to start writing some stories about how you would get over that initial terror? Yes. Well, I think um, that's why people think they can't do it because they are literally sitting there with a piece of paper and a pen or a, a, a laptop. Um, I think, oh, I don't know where to start. There are loads and loads of resources on um, um, prompts, writing prompts. Those are really, really excellent. So go go, go just have a look on the internet. Um, uh, things about working with memory, working with uh, feelings, imagining characters. So just it's finding that starting point, I think. Um, so, or just being given a first line and then told, so I do this with, with uh, students, I'll give them a first line. Go, okay, okay, you've got three minutes. Just write, write. Don't stop. Don't edit it. Um, just, just see what comes. Follow the line of words. So it's that. It's, there is there are tricks to getting started. And then once you've got something on the page, then you can look at it and think, oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't know I thought that. Um, uh, and again, that's the moment where you've actually got something rather than all these endless possibilities of what you could write. 
be writing. So just get, get, find a way of getting started, even if it feels like a bit of a contrived way of getting started. That's why I think, um, you know, once upon a time, there was a, well, uh, I don't know, wombat. <laughs> it's, you know, it's now, it's, you're, you're, you're pursuing the idea of a wombat rather than a set of bagpipes on a top shelf. You know, what you write, the next thing you write suggests what's going to come after it in this sort of unfolding logic. So this is why I think writers, almost all writers that I've ever met, have a sense of the story or the poem or, or the thing existing already. Uh, um, and you're just discovering it or uncovering it or excavating it or chipping away the bits of marble to reveal the, the, the sculpture inside it. Um, yeah, yeah. And just take it seriously, I suppose. That's the other thing I'd say. Um, uh, don't, don't think of it writing as a, a little hobby that, that um, well, that, that is self-indulgent to, to, to play with. No, I'm serious about this. I'm going to, I'm going to take time to do this, and and you know, sit at the feet of the Lord, not not think I should be I should be serving. I should be ministering. No, I'm going to sit and I'm going to I'm going to write. Catherine, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fabulous chatting with you. Thank you, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.